Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John, and I'm so glad you're joining me here on the show. Here on the Bible in Life, we give what I call blue jeans theology. That is theology that's just down to earth. It's in the language of everyday life. It is connected to everyday life so that you can follow Jesus in everyday life. And if that sounds like something that would be helpful to you, and you haven't already, man, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast so you don't ever miss an episode. And not only that, I also have some other Bible teaching on another website and another podcast called The Listener's Commentary, where I teach straight through Bible books in the same everyday language so that you can learn and live the Bible for yourself. So you might check that podcast and that website out as well. All right, one other little note before we jump into today's content, and that's this. Uh, A few weeks ago, I offered a free workshop, online workshop, for pastors and church leaders called Five Necessary Shifts for Becoming a Disciple-Making Church. And I had such a positive response to that, and I had people who missed it, people who expressed interest in it after the fact, wish they'd known about it, but I just had to run it again. So I'm running that same workshop again this week, this Thursday, March 4th, uh, for pastors and church leaders and anybody who really is in a position to want to say, how can the church become a greenhouse for growing mature disciples, for helping people go from pre-faith all the way to mature faith in an effective way. And so that workshop is available this week. The link is down in the notes below, or you can just go to discipleshipworkshop.net. That's discipleshipworkshop.net. All the information is there. You can register for it right there. You've got to register so you can get an email with the Zoom link so that you can join the Zoom call on March 4th. So discipleshipworkshop.net, or you can click the link down in the notes below. Super excited to be able to share that with pastors and church leaders and churches as just a way to help us together think through how can we increasingly be the kind of place that intentionally and strategically helps people really grow in their faith so they can become like Jesus from the inside out and they can carry forward the mission of Jesus in their own sphere of influence. So looking forward to that this Thursday, discipleshipworkshop.net. All right, we have been in a series the last handful of weeks on the podcast where we're looking at some of the words of Jesus that just are confusing, that leave us scratching our head or wondering what he's getting at. Uh, And today we've got two sayings uh, from Jesus as he approaches the cross. Has anyone ever said something to you, just like you're having a conversation with a friend or someone, and they say something to you, and as soon as they say it, you're like, wait, 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 that doesn't make any sense. I'm not tracking with you at all. And then they back up and they explain themselves, and you're like, oh, oh, I get it, and I see what you mean. But what they initially said sure didn't sound quite right. Well, that's sort of what we have in these two sayings from Jesus today. Jesus says these two things, both of them as he's approaching the cross, and both of them are kind of like, I'm just not tracking with you, Jesus. What are you getting at? One, because it sounds so contrary to stuff Jesus taught everywhere else in his ministry. And the other, just because it sounds like that just seems kind of almost cold-hearted or it doesn't just make any sense whatsoever. So these questions are coming at us from people who listen to the podcast regularly, who follow me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, and have submitted some of these things from Jesus. These two come at us as two words of Jesus as he approaches the cross that just don't make a whole lot of sense. The first one is this. In Luke 22, it is the upper room 
Jesus is with his disciples. It's the night before he's going to be crucified. And Jesus uh, really recalls back to some stuff he told the disciples earlier in his ministry when he was sending them out to to kind of carry forward ministry. Like they're, they're like doing an internship. He's sending them out and then they're going to come back, report back. They're going to debrief, almost like an internship, right? And in that context, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had told them, you go out into the villages and the towns there, Galilee. Um, don't take a, a money bag. Don't take a purse. Don't worry about any of that. You just go out. You let the people take care of you. Well, here... Now, towards the end of his ministry, in Luke 22, Jesus says the opposite. He says, but now, this is Luke 22, 36, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And if you have a money bag, take it. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And it sounds like Jesus is saying, all right, now, now that uh, you know, we're at the stage we're at, I'm telling you, you need to make sure you have plenty of, of stuff on hand. Make sure you secure yourself with money and a money bag and swords. Like, get ready to fight because you're going to need a sword. And that's confusing because that's at odds with virtually everything Jesus said earlier in his ministry. Um, Jesus is specifically about loving your enemies, uh, praying for those who persecute you, so what does Jesus mean here, and how does this fit in with what else he has taught? And I think it's important as we wrestle with this specific statement just to say up front that it seems like this one has left a lot of people confused. Even initially, the 12 disciples who were right there with him in the room with him when he said these words seem to be confused uh, because their reaction to him uh, was like, wait a second, we've got a couple swords, and Jesus is like, okay, that's enough. And so they seem to be confused from the get-go. The key question, as we wrestle with what Jesus is getting at here, is this. Did Jesus mean this literally, or did he mean it in some way figuratively? That is, did Jesus really expect them to go and sell their cloaks and buy a sword, or was he saying something else? And to answer this question, I think we need to look at as I noted, the initial response of the apostles. And so Jesus says these words to him about sell your cloak and buy a sword. And then they say back to him, look, Lord, here are two swords. And so they immediately produce the two swords they, they apparently had with them. Look, Lord, here are the two swords. And how does Jesus respond to that? Jesus responds by saying, enough, enough. Now, it depends on your translation. Some translations say, that's enough. But he, he can't possibly mean that's going to be enough swords. Like, if Jesus is saying, literally, it's time to marshal an army and fight our rebellion, two swords in no way is going to be enough to take on the uh, Roman army that is in Jerusalem or anything like that. So, most scholars say what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, all right, just enough. Just enough. He's ending the conversation like, you guys, I just don't get it. You're not understanding what I'm getting at. I know eventually you will. Enough. And he just cuts off the conversation. So I think that's what Jesus is doing here. When they, when they produce, look, Lord, we got two swords. Jesus is like, okay, enough, enough, enough. Just forget it. Let's move on because they don't get what he's getting at. 
and they misunderstand him. Then, in the very next scene in uh, Luke's gospel, we get the Garden of Gethsemane scene. And they, they leave the upper room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying, right? Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And he's praying that way. And Judas comes into the garden with a, a kind of a police force from the temple guard, it seems like. Um, and they come to arrest Jesus. And what happens? Well, what happens is, um, as they come to arrest him, Peter produces one of those very swords that they held up just a little while ago when they were in the upper room. And he swings the sword and he cuts off the, the servant of the high priest. He cuts off his ear. And Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He says, stop, stop, no more of this. And he actually touches the right ear of this guy who is there and he heals his ear in the midst of being arrested, which makes it brutally clear that Jesus wasn't literally calling them to go to battle, to fight on his behalf. And maybe that's how the disciples initially understood it. But Jesus there in the garden tells them, no, that's not what I meant. Stop. No more of this. That's not what I was getting at. Jesus is not calling for people to buy swords. He's not calling for an armed rebellion. And it seems like after the Garden of Gethsemane episode, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, the apostles finally put it all together and they must have figured out what he was talking about. Why? Well, read the book of Acts. And what you see in the book of Acts is you never see swords breaking out. You never see the apostles bust out their swords and start fighting when they're being uh, arrested and whipped and beaten. That's not what happens. They never produce a sword. And so they must have, in the wake of the Garden of Gethsemane event, realized, uh-oh, we misunderstood what he's getting at. And all of that suggests to me that Jesus thus didn't mean um, what they first thought he meant and that they finally figured it out. And so that's why most Bible scholars seem to think that Jesus was giving a pep talk type speech there in the upper room at this critical moment. Um, and this critical moment is going to be a moment of darkness and despair and conflict and hostility. And uh, Jesus is trying to give them a pep talk to say, you guys got to be ready because hostility is coming. Conflict is coming. Remember the earlier days when I sent you out and you had everything you needed and there was no problem and all the townsfolk liked you and they received you well? Well, that was then, but things are about to change. And so he's giving them a pep talk and he means what he's saying figuratively. Hostility is on the horizon, right? That's what he's trying to communicate. And he's using the imagery of a sword to do that. And they misunderstand him. Jesus stops them, corrects them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and so they begin to figure out, oh, the new reality is hardship, difficulty, and violence are coming their way. And I think that's what's going on. But man, it sure doesn't sound like it initially from what Jesus says right up front. I can see how the disciples took him literally and were a little bit confused. I can see why Peter tried to break out a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and swing it at the high priest's servant's ear. We learn actually later in another gospel that his name is Malchus. I can see why they were a little bit confused. 
So I'm so grateful for that incident with the servant of the high priest where Jesus could clarify immediately on the heels of what he said that I didn't mean it literally, boys. I didn't mean it literally. It was a pep talk. I was trying to tell you, get ready for darkness. And here it is. And they figured that out and they learned to suffer like Jesus suffered as a lamb before shearers is silent. So Jesus didn't open his mouth and they learned to follow the same pattern. And we need to learn to follow the same pattern too. All right, that's the first passage uh, as Jesus approaches the cross where it's like, oh man, that's I'm not sure I'm tracking with you, Jesus. The second one comes in the next chapter. Luke chapter 23, verses 27 through 31. Here in this case, Jesus has already been arrested. He's already been beaten. And now he's actually walking the road through Jerusalem with his cross on his way to be crucified. So here at this point, we're in we're in the height of despair. It's all it's all gone south, right? Everything is bad. And there is a crowd of people following along as Jesus is being led through the streets of Jerusalem on his way out to Golgotha to the place of crucifixion. Um, and a part of that crowd is a group of women who are mourning and grieving for him. And you have to picture a traditional Middle Eastern mourning kind of parade almost. It's a wail of women very vocally and very expressively wailing and mourning out loud as they're going through the streets of Jerusalem and Jesus being ushered out of the city to be crucified. And so these women We're not told the specifics of who they are, but they're part of this crowd. And they are vocally, loudly, shrilly mourning for Jesus and grieving for him. And Here's what Jesus does and says in the midst of that. Verse 28, Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are those who cannot bear, and the wombs that have not given birth, and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now, this is a very poignant scene, an emotion-laden scene. Obviously, we're in a very, very, like, Deep, deep emotion, kind of dark scene here. What's amazing to me before we even get at what all Jesus is getting at by his words is Jesus has just been up all night. He has been ushered back and forth between the powers that be. He has been mocked, beaten, scourged. And here he is now carrying his cross, going through the city. Um, He is physically depleted, physically beaten, crushed, bruised, bloodied. His back has been ripped open with the Roman scourge. And in that moment, he still has enough cognitive capacity. And really, when we understand what he says, enough compassion to really speak uh, a prophetic lament to these women and to the crowd that is mourning for him as he's ushered out of the city. You see, Jesus knows what's coming down the road for Jerusalem. In fact, if you read Luke chapter 21, just a few days before this event that we're reading about in Luke 23, 
Jesus had actually spoken of the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come in about 40 years from this moment. Uh, he knows that's coming, and he knows it's going to come about because of Jewish nationalism, Jewish revolt against God, because of their rejection of Jesus' Messiah, all of this complex of events is going to lead to Jerusalem revolting against Rome, to, to Jerusalem then being sieged uh, for three and a half years, and then at the end of three and a half years, Jerusalem actually being um, destroyed and overrun by the Romans and raised, leveled, right? He knows all that's coming. And that is the context that lies behind these words here in Luke 23. So as he's marching through the city and these women are wailing for him, Jesus pauses. He looks at them full of compassion because they're so, they're so broken over what he is going through. And yet he wants to issue a prophetic lament and a prophetic warning about what's about to come. And so he says to them, Weep not for me. It is bad, but don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for what's going to come here in this city. And the record and the descriptions of what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70 and leading up to the actual destruction of it during the siege for those three and a half years was awful and horrific. Um, cannibalism, uh, blood flowing in the streets like rivers. It was awful and horrific. Jesus knows uh, that that's what's coming. And he's saying, this is bad for me, yes, but it's going to be so bad for Jerusalem because of what they're doing right here and because of their whole spirit and the whole way they're approaching things and their whole rejection of God and the day of salvation. It's going to be so bad for Jerusalem. So weep for yourselves and weep for your children. And then he goes on and he says in verse 29, for behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are those who cannot bear. Blessed are the wombs that have not given birth and the breasts that have never nursed. Like barrenness in Jewish culture was one of the, the, the most worst things you could endure. And what Jesus is saying here is, guess what? It's going to be so bad in those days. It's going to be so awful for people who are having kids today and in the next decades, it's going to be so awful that in a certain sense, it'll be better if you never had kids when you, and you won't have to watch them suffer and you won't have to watch them endure the awfulness of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem. That's what he's saying there. And so they're going to say, blessed are the parents that didn't have to endure this and watch their kids suffer through this. And then they will say to, to, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. And this is an echo from the book of uh, Hosea, where they're in view of judgment of God and, and what's coming because of their unfaithfulness to God and the covenant. They're actually calling on the hills to bury them and cover them because that'd be better than what's going to happen when Babylon overruns them, when the foreigners take over, just like it's going to happen with the Romans overrunning uh, Jerusalem in, in a few decades from Jesus's day. And so they're going to begin calling out like that because judgment is falling on them and it's going to be awful and it's going to be terrible. Um, for he says in verse 31, if they do this thing when the tree is green, presumably meaning um, like here he is, the Messiah is in their midst, the tree is green, he is present to them and they're doing this to him. How much more will it be 
when the tree is dry, right? Like it's going to be even worse then, and their reaction will be worse then. And so this here in Luke 23, in the midst of Jesus' march to Golgotha, is really a, a prophetic um, lament born of compassion for what's going to come upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, both of these statements that we have have read and looked at that at first blush seem difficult and don't make sense to us, um, they, they call us and remind us that as we read Scripture, we need sometimes just to slow down and listen closely. Like any good conversation, we need to seek first to understand before we seek to do anything, right, to make someone else understand, or in our case, to make someone understand the text. We really need to slow down and listen closely. Ask good questions. Where are we confused? Why are we confused? Look at the context and try to figure that stuff out, right? Listen really closely. And if you're reading through something like this and your first blush response is, that doesn't sound quite like something Jesus would say based on everything else he said, then slow down. Consider the whole context of the passage. Consider the greater context of Scripture, the teaching of the apostles and the example of the apostles. Let's try to figure out how they understood what Jesus said, right? And always remember that, that the Bible uses plenty of figures of speech. Figures of speech are just part of normal talk. We use them in our everyday languages, whether it's English or whatever native language you speak. We use figures of speech all the time. And we don't think anything of it, right? They did the same. And so we have to pay attention. Oh, this may be figure, figurative language. This may be not literal. This what, what did the original author or the original speaker, in this case Jesus, intend to communicate by what he was saying? So we always want to just slow down, make sure we're listening closely, make sure we're hearing it in context as we read the scriptures. And again, I've got some free resources on my website that can help you do that. One is just uh, seven, uh, seven ways to immediately get more out of the Bible. I'll actually give you some tips for understanding the text and then applying and reflecting on the text. Seven ways to immediately get more out of the Bible. I'll put a link in, uh, to that down in the notes below. You can check that out if that would be helpful to you. So, hey, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope it's helpful to you as we continue to reflect on just some of these confusing words of Jesus and think through some of these difficult words and really begin to hear Jesus. In both these cases, man, it requires us to slow down, hear him closely so that we don't, we don't do like what Peter did in the garden and take something Jesus didn't mean, think it's what he meant, and then misapply Jesus' words and act all wrongly because of it. That's what Peter did. We don't want to do that. Uh, we want to make sure we hear what Jesus is really getting at so that we can live the way he wants us to in our present day and age. All right, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I am so grateful for you and grateful for your engagement and involvement with this ministry. Feel free to share the podcast far and wide. If it's been a benefit to you, it'll probably be a benefit to somebody else. So make sure you let them know about it. And for all of you who are generous supporters and donors to this podcast and to this ministry, thanks a ton. I appreciate each and every one of you. God bless you guys. I look forward to talking to you again next week.